Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. My guest is Michelle Wander. She's a professor at University of Illinois. She has the Wander Soil Ecology Lab. So we're going to talk about, you know, what's the importance of soil, nutrients associated with it. Uh, it's becoming a very, very big topic worldwide. So welcome, Michelle. Thank you for coming. Nice to be here. Yeah, if you would, tell me a bit about your background, and then we'll get into your research. Okay. I am a soil ecologist, and I had the great opportunity to study and work in a lot of different places, which is really nice because soils and environments and geology that they develop out of differ, and so do the vegetative complexes. So it's a great education to get. And I have done a lot of different things in agriculture, but I've also had a firsthand experience with my husband being an organic vegetable farmer. So I've gotten to eat pretty well. Okay. So what is it about soil that you're interested in, you're studying? What kind of questions are you trying to answer? Most of my questions have centered really around this idea of biologically based fertility, where, you know, it's been um, really running through the history of soil science and really natural resource management in agriculture, trying to understand fertility. So I've been interested in kind of how theories around managing and conserving that over time have evolved and waxed and waned and been very interested in the thinking about soil organic matter and soil biology in particular. Yeah, well, I hear a lot, you know, oh, these soils have been depleted, uh, they're no longer usable, or, you know, more and more fertilizer has to be applied to the, this soil or that soil. And then I also hear regenerative farming that promises to build up the soil so you don't need maybe any external inputs over time. What's your overall sense of, again, uh, current agriculture and farming versus uh, regenerative? Do either you know, to both have their place, where are things headed? Yeah, you know, there's so many different agricultures in so many different places, and in different places, different issues pose, you know, varying challenges. So, you know, I've been broadly interested in different farming system styles that have sought to balance the productivity, you know, objective and the environmental protection and try to get nutrient use efficient production. And so we, you know, we hear now and people talk about regenerative agriculture and, you know, often in the North America or in the U.S., if we're talking about that in grain producing systems that are rain fed, we kind of have already taken a couple of steps down a road that narrows the issues substantially, you know, and I could talk about that if you want to drill into that. But I would say sort of broadly, you know, what I think a key recurring problem, and since it's uh, Groundhog Day, I might keep referring back to, you know, some of the things that we would, would be nice to get past instead of getting trapped over and over in this, con- you know, conversation that might not be constructive if we're not clear. So, you know, I think if we were farming in a place that has a sandy soil that doesn't have the ability to hold a lot of water or nutrients, you know, it doesn't have a lot of minerals that have surface charge on them that help retain nutrients, for example, or stabilize soil organic matter, then 
your whole style of management in that system has to be very just in time. So the ideas around precision ag and, and you know, synchronizing plant use, almost like a hydroponic approach, you know, would be the way to go. Or if you were in a place that was a, a very water limited environment and you have to sort of your, your greatest limitation to your, you know, ability to produce crops and to maintain the resource was water, you prioritize and, and you have different whole strategies that you're going to have to put at the, you know, as the floor. So, you know, we have in the U.S., we have a lot of what is classified as prime agricultural land because it doesn't have a lot of vulnerability to erosion, for example. And we've alleviated in large areas problems with very high water tables. So we've added tile drainage, which has had, you know, a trade-off between water quality and fisheries and productivity that would have been in our aquatic systems. To, and we've increased the productivity for rain-fed crops, you know, and a whole kind of market complex that's piggybacked on there. So if now I've sort of set the stage for your question about regenerative ag answered in that context, right? We could get into there and we see a lot of interest and we could look to things like the moral plots, for example. So I'm I'm at the University of Illinois and sort of by way of stepping back in on my background, I've been interested in farming systems and in comparative studies and often the way we look at soil degradation or decline. And, and you talked about that, you know, in terms of people worrying about soils being degraded. And uh, the Mara Plots is the oldest agricultural experiment in the United States and in North America. And it was initially designed as a soil exhaustion trial. And at the time, people weren't really clear about how long we could maintain productivity. And we were worried about running out. And, you know, we hadn't really worked out all the understanding about how to optimize nutrition. And we were building upon, uh, you know, in the late 1800s, people really clarifying and understanding the essential elements that plants needed to be productive. And so people were thinking about, you know, where are these nutrients sourced? How much is there in the soil and how long will it be before we deplete them? And at the time, we were shooting for yields of 50 bushels per acre, right? So that's a, that's a really low bar, but we were worried about sustaining that yield. You know, so over time, we've had a period of watching productivity fall in the continuous corn plots. They're, the plots have, you know, a monoculture system, had a two-crop rotation and three-crop. And so over time, you know, we've been seeing the yields in the monoculture fall. And this is one of the early and uh, the Sanborn plots in Missouri are another old longstanding trial in many, many places where this benefit of rotation. And so if you could see me, I would be doing air quotes around rotation. And so unpacking what is it about crop diversity. And so right now I've labeled it crop diversity, but buried in a rotation is a lot more than just the composition of the plant mix. It's also the way in which you're going to um you know, terminate and then reestablish the next crop. So back up a little bit. Why and how do soils get depleted? What are some examples? Oh, okay. So the more plots where we see declining yields, which is an indirect evidence of loss of inherent productivity in that continuous corn. What people have then, you know, trying to empirically ferret that out, we look at the quantity of nutrients and our whole approach to managing fertility, often we develop soil tests that inform. So we've looked at, you know, do we have a limiting nutrient? Do we have an imbalance of nutrients? Do we have a disease problem? This whole notion, and even the name of the Moraplatz was reflective of a point in time where we didn't fully understand the suite of things that would be happening. So that the exhaustion portion, people thought that plants being planted recurringly would actually leave behind things that became phytotoxic in the soil. That, and also 
increasing trouble with disease. That So some of the notions around soul degradation could be those loss of support of biologies. But that notion of exhaustion is not, I think, for a period of time got kind of forgotten. And when people thought about soul degradation, they looked at erosion, which is, you know, I think we had some period of time and was actually led to the creation of, of many of our really important and, you know, influential programs in our government tech schools were really responding to very obvious visual degradation that was, you know, rapid in time and catastrophic with gullies. So, but what do you mean, you mean visual degradation or there's not enough nutrients in the soil and you can't grow things? Like what um, are the primary, when, when people yeah. say soil degraded, what is the primary yeah. thing they're talking about? Yeah. So wind and water erosion that would carry away the finer particles, which are the most nutrient dense, would would degrade the water holding and the nutrients present. So both a combination of physical and chemical fertility. Typically, people emphasize the nutrient composition, but in rain-fed agriculture, the ability for the plants to acquire those nutrients, even if they're there, if the physical environment they're in is compacted and there's not a good mixture of both structure that allows aeration and um, good rooting activity and also you know good drainage and resistance to erosion. So that physical fertility is something that's really, really important. And I think now in the whole conversation about soil health is important to many, many people especially farmers farming in a rain-fed environment that really rely on on good water management. So degradation, if you had loss of organic matter and depletion of nutrients would be one thing, but it's it's the relatively easily remedied part of degradation. So we can replace lost nutrients with fertility, but if the physical environment and the water aren't there to allow the nutrients to be captured, you've got a lot of problems. You've got not only can the plant not acquire them efficiently, you also then lose them. So you have the you know, the degradation on-site is accompanied by uh, degradation off-site. So those are kind of the classics which get, you know, in different problems being emphasized. If you are worrying about erosion and water quality, you would look at that transport of materials. If you were worried about the productivity on your farm, you might be worried more and you'd look at organic matter in terms of the density of the soil, the infiltration rates on that soil, and then the amount of water that is held that's plant available. You also might look at water that is standing in the field and see that as a real negative, you know, roots. We see that not unfortunately with increasing frequency where we have, you know, flooding or saturation that's again this bad for bad for plants in place and bad for water bodies that are adjacent. Yeah, but why would traditional agriculture need to constantly apply more and more and more and more fertilizer? And why is it necessary? What what is the other mechanism? Sorry, not talking about physical erosion, but you know, what is this other mechanism by which they say the soil is depleted? Yeah. So those the supply of, of nutrients from the soil itself. And if we were going to think about really kind of the question the more plots were asking were, you know, how long before we can't sustain productivity? Then we got pretty excited about the realization that we could replace nutrients that the plant took up. And so we had different philosophies of, of fertilization. And so we, we developed soil tests with this idea of finding critical limits where the plant, you know, they would limit and understanding that the least the nutrient that was limiting would limit uptake of all the other essential elements. So there's that sort of a dominant philosophy. Or sometimes people take a different approach where they just kind of do a simple accounting where you're looking at crop removal and you try to replace that amount. And, and so you could hold in place and that would be only worrying about the nutrient abundance. But you could have, and I was trying to guess this point about, you know, the, the attention now being 
you know, raised that's been recognized by some farming communities, but not all, is that it doesn't matter if you have all the nutrients in the world there, if you degrade that physical habitat that the roots inhabit, or if you have a rotation that supports the presence of a suite of resident, uh, you know, a food web and biota that are problematic, you still can't take up those nutrients, right? So you have to maintain that that biological health, which is still kind of described in a sounds like romantic language. And I think we're finally getting some tools and understandings of what that looks like. But often, even still, this degradation, people would would be asserting kind of a style of farming as opposed to the mechanism that, you know, breaks down. For example, we know we still see much better corn yields in the mora plots in the corn soybean rotation than in the continuous corn rotation. And if we did a soil test, they would both have abundant nutrients. And the organic matter levels in the corn soybean are similar to that in the continuous corn. So that's total stock of organic matter is, is similar, but the influence on the active microbial community is altered because of rotating that crop. So that rotation effect. And so that's sort of the, we still- But why is, it, why is it necessary? Like why, why are some regenerative farmers saying, you know, the soil has all you need? And common, you know, like uh, regular agriculture is like, nope, we got to put more and more and more and more and more fertilizer in, in order to get the, you know, the, in order for the soil to yield anything. Like, why is there such a radical difference? Yeah, so so this is where we have examples that can work super well and have people, you know, really there are real differences in the efficiency of of how some farming systems can work. So I had the opportunity to do my dissertation at the Rodale Research Center. And they had the first farming systems trial for organic in the country. And it was comparing organic and conventional rotations. And in the organically managed system, it did have more organic matter and it had higher yield stability. And if we did a nutrient budget, it also was less leaky of nutrients, right? So then I would say, oh, this it's not like it had everything it needed. You, you can't, you would mine a soil if you just keep harvesting and you don't return. We could leverage nitrogen fixation by legumes to get one of the more energy and quantity demanding components, the nitrogen piece of that puzzle, you know, but we, we can't extract into the, you know, forever, but it could be much more efficient. And so the regenerative farmer who's an environment that is benefit, you know, can see side by side yield trials and say, see, this system is doesn't need more and more, and I could s- sustain and maintain these yields. And if you do that over a long time, and this is kind of funny, like this is the human nature in the moral plots, a person who's worrying about soil degradation looks at the gap between the yields in the corn. And I, this would be my perspective. For example, I look at the corn as a great bioassay because it's a very hungry, demanding crop. And I see that, you know, I've lost a significant amount of yield potential in the continuous corn. And I then I look to differences in the soil in the rotation that's been a three-year rotation, more diverse, where it has more organic matter. But I want to unpack that and see what the differences are. So I would I would look at that and I would say this three-year rotation is needs less. And I would even look at the critical limits in soil tests and I would say it's got way lower uh, soil test values, but it's able to get and satisfy a high and support a higher yield and a more stable yield during years of drought stress because of that physical fertility. And, you know, the, the rooting environment and or the microbial community aren't uh, stressing out those roots so that the roots are being more 
efficient and effective in the nutrient capture, right? And so that would be more and more and more if I'm degrading my resource, I have to, you know, I'm on the red queen. That's also some nice ecology, you know, where you could look at our agriculture and look at increasing pest pressure and we put more and more on and, you know, that kind of thing when you have a system that doesn't have the biology. And and in a way, I'm, I'm using then romantic language where to help an individual farmer leverage some of these mechanisms in complicated systems in different environments, we need to do a lot more research that actually makes the kind of mythical beast of these beautifully functioning, diversified systems, practical, you know, and deliverable to to many farms. So, you know, I can point to some long-term side-by-side trials where we have these differences that give us clues. But then I talk to a person with a different perspective and they look at the Mara plots and they say, yeah, but you're only growing corn one in three years and I don't have a market for hay. So they, you know, turn the apple cart over and think then the, you know, um, more inputs, more money, short-term thinking is a better way to go for that, right? And that's now I'm getting outside of my expertise because I'm talking about economy. So, okay. Is there any other answer besides adding just more fertilizer? I mean, again, these regenerative methods, developing compost, things like that. Are these methods just unusable on a large scale? Like why aren't large producers, um, you know, embracing regenerative agriculture? Is it too expensive? Is it too difficult? Like what are some of the problems? No, I mean, well, I, I think that regenerative agriculture and methods that have been sort of what I'm going to call carbon-centric farming, I think there are many farming styles and some have really put a high value on the, um, and a desire to manage the ecology so they don't have to put more and more on. And so in some of those systems, we have some that work really, really well, and they, they tend to be the ones that are showcased. So in the of the rotations, the rotations that include livestock that is being fed hay and you have a crop that protects or plants out there that protect the soil in, throughout the winter and add carbon and, and sort of keep a lot of biological cycling going tend to work really well and Many of the studies that would show, those, sometimes too, those are also putting manure on. And so often kind of, again, I'll go back to my ground, my Groundhog Day metaphor. Often we reduce a question to an oversimplified comment about it. So often we're emphasizing a piece of a complicated system. So rotation, crop diversity is one thing. Growing things that are long-lived and through the winter is another component of livestock production systems occasionally, but not over-applying manure is another piece that tends to be important. But you can see some of these livestock systems breaking down when people get to press them too hard, want to shorten them too much, use the manure as a and the land as a waste disposal rather than... So all of this are as a matter of balance. And so regenerative farmers and then different kinds of market and economic structures that support farmers who do the extra work to farm regeneratively and do the extra you know, the, there, we often shorthand things with input substitution and in agriculture. And I think we have, you know, some of our conventional systems that have, you know, like adding fertilizer is an easy one-step action that can restore loss of nutrients pretty quickly. And we know how to do it. It's pretty simple. Herbicides too can take down a competition very, very simply. So they are... Um, more knowledge and more timing, and in some ways, more risk has to be borne by a person who wants to be farming ecologically. I think to try to meet those growers and encourage them, I think we see a lot of different efforts to design societal interventions or brand premiums, right? So I think we see that in this regenerative label, you know, trying to encourage people to do things like 
plant cover crops. And so for cover crops to come into acceptability, you know, we see a lot of interesting things with people trying to do, you know, crop insurance that allows cover crops to be in and not force. I mean, there are a lot of interesting social structural market kinds of things that can make this within reach. And then the agronomy, you know, in terms of the investment and the availability of seed and to optimize the the cover crop um, materials, and then also the equipment. You know, we do have a lot of motion with, you know, creative uh, uh, new tillage implements that would be low disturbance and, you know, able to mechanically do that if you didn't want to use herbicides. I think the herbicide issues, and we've gotten really in trouble with over-application of narrowed uh, herbicide choices with enabled by GM. So here's an example too. Of, you know the critique of genetically modified uh, organisms. You know could be discussed from many different vantage points, but this one is a is a real clear one. With you know overuse led to pretty rapid evolution of weeds, and so you know this idea of diversifying not only crops but diversifying strategies so that you don't put a super strong environmental filter out there to end up creating a problem. Right. So that's a our you know the monoculture approaches and more and more and more we we sometimes do some really dumb things that we that many people knew were coming at us before they hit us in the house so what are some um i mean from the large producers you know the big 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 farms what directions do they appear to be heading in what are they asking academia to help figure out for them or they you know they kind of doing all this in-house and it's proprietary yeah so i think that the the, I'm not really, I'm hoping to really help the people who are not super, super big so that they don't basically have the, you know, the man or, or woman or person to land ratio isn't just super low. I mean, I know that's one of our efficiencies, but, you know, I think that, you know, bigger equipment and more spray, you know, I think we've seen a lot of cost to that. So, the, so that's really hard for, for us to maintain you know, waterways if they're going to basically be killed by herbicide spray. And so, you know, I think we need, we don't, if, if a person farming too many acres, then they have to move their equipment around to too many places and they can't basically optimize or even reasonably time their field operations so they don't also degrade the soil because of compaction. You know, so there are many, there are many soil horrors, you know, things that can really harm the soil that are, you know, ill-timed and overused or, you know, so the I have a whole, you know, there are many ways to harm the soil, but here that probably the the looming problem in our rain-fed systems where, you know, the current discussion of regenerative ag, you know, this there are things that we can do with equipment design, tire inflation, you know, a person who's forced to go when they shouldn't go, just hearing somebody today talking about the way this spring's weather sh- is shaping up, you know, we're going to have very small windows where the optimum, and we, we talk about this in terms of soil physics, you know, the window of opportunity is going to be small. And so if somebody's farming too many acres, there's no way they're not going to cause physical deterioration of their system. So ideally, farmers can make a good living not having to farm too many acres, and then we can have more people and more vibrant rural communities. So what are some of the best practices that you encourage some of your clients, you know, or people that seek your advice to engage in? You know, I know it's situation specific, but what are some examples? Yeah, I think uh, there are many, many ways uh, for to succeed in agriculture. And I've worked with lots of farmers that have different farming styles. And I, I see sort of interesting things, and I sort of look and learn from them about what they're doing that allows them to be good students. Stewards. And to be a good steward, they not only have to, you know, make a good living, but they also have to 
you know, or they're striving to be, you know, to care for the land, both on their farms and also in their neighborhoods, right? And so many of the farmers that I that I might really get some traction with and, and would be sort of my job is to try to really help them with that balance because it's it's not easy, right? I think for some of these farmers, some of the demands to manage nitrogen, for example, you know, there's there's just a limit of how precise, for example, if we think about using precision timing and placement, again, a thing that you really can't do if you've got too many acres. Also, if you in terms of your buying your inputs, if you have to buy all your inputs in the fall, then you can't use spring nitrogen testing and respond to adjust your rates very easily, right? So trying to basically scale it so that they have as much control and awareness of the points where their systems are going to be vulnerable to deterioration or also likely points of leakiness, right? So to try to tighten nutrient cycles, you know, in a diversified system, or if you're trying to add cover crops in, you know, I would, you want to have the farmer really understand the pinch points and understand their options and not end up in a situation where, you know, they're, and this is, I think that where I would be very humble and I, I typically look for the best farmers and look at what they're doing and try to, you know, learn from them, you know, and then give them useful information if, if I can. So, you know, I think those are the farmers I'm in conversation with, and some of them are super pioneering and thinking about, for example, you know, now if it's really our goal to mitigate climate and to basically the, it's great if we can keep the carbon and nitrogen in the soil and recycled through the plants and we don't want it anywhere else. So to really use modeling, for example, or sometimes people think about developing decision support tools. And I think we know a lot about this, but to actually basically make that tool realistic for an individual farmer so that it's helping them in their decision space is really a challenge. So I've been able to do that with some farmers where I know their system well enough and I've sort of adapted, you know, a prototype to show them what happens with fall tillage and what happens if the if the cover crop is a legume and how sensitive that is to the actual biomass of the cover crop. So these are some of the things that really observant farmers and just basically farmers are all in some ways gamblers, you know, trying to really do estimate where you are in your nitrogen and when you're growing your nitrogen and you might have a variable. Are they gamblers or are they investors, you know, with your advice? Oh, well, both. Why can't they be uh, soil health investors instead of gamblers with your help? Oh, yeah. I think that some of them really are soil health investors and hopefully if they, if they, Depends where their system is when they start and what their inherent soils are, their roads going to be easier or more difficult. And really the the priorities of the farmer and the farmer styles really end up with really different discussions with individual farmers. And I think, you know, I had the uh, opportunity to do some teaching and try to teach people who are technical service providers and really look to some of the people who I think are really good consultants. I think sometimes people have a skepticism about consultants. And I think some people make it a practice never to get advice from somebody who's selling them the thing that they would remedy or, you know, sort of separating it. But anyway, I, I think that that, you know, really listening to and, and trying to understand the things that some of the really good consultants are doing, I think helped me try to figure out how to supply them and the farmers with some of the science that we have that helps them. But that's really, you know, and I... <laughs> I have huge respect for a lot of the farmers who I think are trying to be soil health investors because many of them really are, you know, super good at observing their system. And then they are very aggressive consumers of information and, you know, really, really good at managing their information 
and pursuing useful information. So I think that, you know, that those folks hopefully do reduce risk. But I say that knowing that some of them who have high ambitions and maybe started with soils that were super degraded, you know, have to go to a pretty far length to actually make those systems low risk and not, you know, maintain reasonable yields without putting a lot of external inputs, right? So it's a really individualized challenge for farms. And that's, I think that's the reason that a lot of the research that we do in theory, you know, and I look back at a lot of really good insightful theories that have been around and we're making some slow and exciting progress on them, but then to help individual farmers bring it out and apply it in their systems is a, is a whole extra effort. And um, unfortunately, you know, I think some of our, our uh, efforts haven't kept up with what needs to be done there. Okay. Well, very good. What's the best place for people to re- reach out to you for help and to follow your publications and your work? That's an interesting question now, too, where, you know, I think some people are really good at using, for example, Google Scholar is fantastic and can help people find things. I think the open source publication movement is great and people can find things. Also, if, you know, we used to buy reprints or and then mail them to people, but, you know, now if it's not online and you wanted it, if you email me, I'll I'll send it to you, right? So my email's a great way, you know, searching things. I also had, although I, I don't know now if it's the best source, I, you know, everything is after two years, if you haven't worked on it, it's out of date these days. So, <laughs> you know, eOrganic, I think is a good resource. I think we have lots of, you know, regional efforts to providing information and regenerative, you know, getting into a learning network. I would say, you know, I'm glad to help people if they contact me, maybe it's one of the best ways. But one thing I would say is a characteristic of most of what I would call the elite regenerative farmers is most of them are in a a social network with other farmers and doing peer-to-peer learning. And then they're also actively engaging with their either universities or people who are interested in this space. And, you know, they're not afraid to ask questions. Okay. Well, very good. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate your time. Okay. Thanks for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.